Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Greetings, and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast program. Uh, you got your regular hosts with you today, Jeff and Brian. Hey, Brian, how you doing? Hey, doing well. Looking forward to see what God's Word has to teach us today. Absolutely. So from time to time, our regular listeners uh, realize that we bundle up uh, some questions that we've received to our website. Uh, and for those you know newer listeners, you may not realize, but our website at BibleQuestions.org has a lot of material, uh, shorter articles, longer articles, sermons, obviously these podcasts. But the website also has an ask a question feature. So anytime, day or night, you can come to the website, you know, see what's there. Uh, and if you have a question that's not really answered by what we've already got out there on the website, you can easily submit a question. And, and a lot of people do. Uh, in fact, in the two plus decades uh, that the website has been in operation, you know, literally we have received thousands and thousands and thousands of questions from all different kinds of people all around the planet, all different kinds of topics, uh, and have tried our best to give folks a, a scriptural answer for their questions. And so what we like to do for our podcast, occasionally we'll you know, select some questions. Uh, hopefully that uh, our listeners may have uh, encountered on their own or heard other people you know, ask the questions of. Uh, so hopefully this can be of some benefit at least in uh, today's podcast, what we've done is we've looked back over the first half of the year of uh, 2023 uh, and gathered a handful that we'd like to kind of go over with you today and give you some thoughts related to the questions we've received previously in the last six months. Brian, did you want to say anything before we actually uh, just jump into the middle of it? No, let's dive right in. All right. So you get the first one. So Ding submitted the following question. What does it mean in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that the Father chose us in Jesus to be saved and predestined us for adoption even before the creation of the world when Jesus hadn't been revealed to humankind yet and the world hadn't even existed yet? <laughs> I'm in the dark about this. This is an example, I think, of you know a thought-provoking question. No doubt, sometimes we will read something, and much like Ding did, just say, "Well, I, I don't really understand. Like, how could this be?" And no doubt, it comes back to seeing what the Bible has to say about it. Now, in Ephesians chapter one, this particular verse, and he actually actually also references verse five. So, verses four and five uh, are really a couple of verses that can be easily misunderstood, but. Well, we'll kind of come back to what the, the verses are actually teaching, and let's just start by kind of answering his central question, and that is, you know, how could God make this statement or make this promise when, once again, as he said, Jesus hadn't been revealed to mankind and the world wasn't even in existence yet? So when we study the scriptures, what we find is that Jesus was with God prior to creation. So Jesus has been there since the beginning. And with God knowing all things, we, what we might call being omniscient, he knew that his creation, man, would sin 
And so he planned for our salvation through his son, Jesus. So he put together this plan before the creation of the world. And Jesus and the Holy Spirit, being part of the Godhead, executed this plan for God. And so if we go to 1 John, or excuse me, if we go over to John chapter 1, Beginning in verse 1, we see here, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the Word here in this particular case is speaking about Jesus. And we know this because if you read on in that chapter, you'll see in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it's clearly speaking of Jesus. And as it states here, in the beginning, Jesus was there. In fact, if you were to go back to Genesis chapter 1, You'll see when God tells, uh, makes the statement, let us create man in our image. Well, Jesus and the Holy Spirit were there as well as you read through that chapter uh, becomes evident. All right, so Jesus was there. Jesus was familiar with God's plan. Jesus helped the, to execute the plan by creating, doing the actual creating, and once again, coming to this earth in the likeness of men. And so Jesus, you know, near the end of his ministry, reference the fact that he finished the work that God gave him to do. In other words, he executed God's plan. So, Jeff, could I get you to read John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5? Let's see what Jesus says here. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world was. So another example here where Jesus references the fact that he's been around since the beginning and was with God in the very beginning. Now, when we look at what what, is the, what are these two verses talking about, it's probably good just to at least make sure we understand what's being taught here because there's been a lot of false doctrine based on these two verses. So when we think about Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5, to get the context, let's go back to verse 3. And here it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. In him, verse 7 tells us, we have redemption through his blood, speaking of Christ, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So when you read this entire section, Ephesians 1, 3 through 7, we now can ask, like Dang did, well, what does it mean that God chose us and predestined us to adoption? Well, if you were to look at the Greek word for this word translated predestined, it means predetermined. Okay, so what did God predetermine, some might ask? Well, that we would be or could be adopted as his children and that we would be given salvation through his son. And so, for instance, if you were to go back to John chapter 1 and look in verse 12, it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So we see here, once again, this was God's plan. And it's the plan that's being referenced here as it relates to being predestined and predetermined. It was God's plan in advance to make this happen. One final passage that also kind of helps to clarify what this means, and that's in Colossians chapter 1. 
Beginning in verse 13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you skip down to verse 21, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So here we wrap all this up. We see that God planned for our ability to be adopted as children. And this section that we just read here in Colossians chapter 1 teaches us that our adoption is conditional. Because you notice it says that we must continue in the faith and not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. So God has given us the means. We have to be faithful and do what he's asked us to do to become his children. So anyhow, Jeff, a lot there could be easily misunderstood, but hopefully that answers things question. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding today about the concept of, you know, predestination. And, you know, that is a biblical term. And a lot of people believe, well, that's God picking individual people. You know, you, not me, <laughs> Sue, not Betty, whatever. Um, but as you pointed out, you know, it, it's not God arbitrarily picking individuals, but more, you know, picking the plan or the approach or, or the characteristics of the people uh, that would, uh, that he would find, uh, you know, righteous uh, and uh, uh, saved as part of the whole, as part of the whole plan, so to speak. All right. So I guess I get the next one. Yeah, next question comes from Patrick. Can an elder continue to serve if his wife dies, or does he have to give up that position? What does the scripture teach on this matter? Right. Now, given the diversity of religious denominations out there and the way they're structured and led, I think we need to maybe lay a little bit of groundwork first from the New Testament in terms of the uh, the revealed pattern or a you know, local congregation and its leadership. And I think that's kind of important, and we do emphasize that from time to time, that you know, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, and if you're going to say, yes, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, you know, I've turned my life over to him, you know, we'll, we'll want to, we will want to do what he wants us to do. And that's to include you know, calling Bible things by Bible names, doing everything we can to follow the New Testament revealed pattern of Christianity and what Christians do and how they're organized into local congregations, etc. Now, this is certainly true when it comes to the government and leadership structure, if you will, uh, roles, responsibilities within the local congregation. And this is where, honestly, Brian, there's, there's a lot of confusion and a lot of divergence from what the New Testament has as a pattern. To be specific, within the New Testament, there's a number of terms that, if you look at them very carefully, are all synonyms. They're used for the same role. And depending upon you know, your religious background, you may have heard of some of these. Pastor, elder, bishop, overseer, presbyter, shepherd. These are all words New Testament uses for the same position, for the same role. Uh, you know, in Patrick's case, he uses the word elder. 
Uh, other congregations, you know, may use the word bishop or overseer. Basically, it's the same role. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk a, a little bit later about how the, the word is misused. But they basically, these terms all describe the leadership of a local congregation. And more importantly to the question, there are some qualifications. First Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 list a number of qualifications that these people have to have. Uh, and here's again another divergence. And I know it's more of a side, side topic. Divergence of, you know, the scriptures say this, but a lot of religions practice something different. Specifically, a plurality, multiple, men, not women, they have to meet certain qualifications. Among those qualifications, uh, as we'll see, uh, if you go ahead and read, you know, 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, Titus chapter 1, they are married, not single. So, married men with children, okay? So, that eliminates, and again, a plurality. So, that eliminates, you know, a single person in charge, sometimes called a pastor, it eliminates a single uh, unmarried person, etc. Um, eliminates women, like we said already. First uh, Timothy chapter three, verse two. Uh, in this context, as we said, synonymous terms it uses the word bishop. A bishop must then be blameless, the husband of one wife. Uh, Titus chapter one, verses five and six. Appoint elders in every city, as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. So, we've got qualifications to include husband of one wife. Uh, a careful reader of these passages will notice that, you know, these are commands, not options. These are not guidelines. They're commands, number one. Number two, the verb tense, it's present tense, must be. These are the kinds of characteristics that are required for a person or a candidate, if you will, candidate to become an elder as well as remain an elder. So, uh, if a person no longer is blameless, <laughs> you know, no longer uh, has, you know, possesses any of the other, you know, qualifications, you know, they're not qualified. Uh, if they are no longer the husband of one wife, you know, because the wife dies or, you know, divorce is involved, whatever the case may be. Uh, you know, they're no longer qualified, just to put it very uh, simply. So, a number of qualifications that need to continue, to, well, initially be met for the person to be considered uh, in this position and need to continue to be met for them to remain in the position. It's not a, uh, I don't know what the right word is, Brian, you know, a tenure program uh, where a person, you know, once they get tenure, that you know, they cannot be removed regardless of their behavior or, or their circumstances. That's that's not the uh, the view here that's portrayed within scripture. Brian, anything you want to add? Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to really explain that. You did a good job of really outlining it. Like you said, a little background information sometimes is needed. And, you know, like every other, I guess, section of scripture, it can be abused or just not understood. I'm thinking about, for instance, if you have Mormons come knock at your door, oftentimes it's two teenage guys that show up and they have a name tag that says elder so-and-so. It's always like to ask them, well, are you married? <laughs> and they'll be like, no. Do you have children? No. Okay, well, then you can't possibly be an elder because according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, you must be the husband of one. A anyhow, 
it just goes to show you that if we don't take the time to see what the Bible teaches, then we can introduce all kinds of stuff, can't we? Right. Well, and, you know, we can see that easy with the Mormons, but, you know, there's a lot of, you know, Protestant denominations that have a, you know, pastor, a.k.a. a preacher in charge of the congregation. And, you know, they don't stop to think, well, is he married? Well, no. Does he have children? Uh, no. It's like, okay, he's not qualified. So, uh, and we're, we're, we're the, we might point to the Mormons and kind of uh, say, you know, bad example. Uh, or, or people that just, you know, abuse the word. You know, a lot of Protestant denominations do as well. That's right. Okay, Brian, let's move on to the next one. So, Baseo writes in, is Psalm 149, five, verses 5 through 9, to be taken literally, or is there some symbolic meaning? Also, two-parter, I guess. Also, when can we expect it to be fulfilled? Psalm 149, 5 through 9. A good question, and, you know, sometimes it can be difficult in Scripture to determine if it's literal or figurative, if it meant it was going to happen then or at some point in the future. So let's just kind of look at that section that Basayo references, Psalm 149, beginning in verse 5, says, Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. To execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment, the honor have all his saints, praise the Lord. So to determine first, you know, is this something that is literal or symbolic? First, we can, you know, we should look at, you know, who is being addressed here. And so if you were to back up to verse 2 in Psalm 149, it says, Let Israel rejoice in their maker, let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. So we can see here clearly that this is talking about the Israelites as far as who is being addressed here. And so next, you know, to answer Basile's question, was it literal or symbolic? We know that Israel literally took vengeance on wicked nations. For instance, when they went into the land of Canaan, God commanded them to drive out those wicked nations. And we see like with Jericho and other examples that with God's help, they absolutely were able to execute punishment on these wicked nations. And so, you know, this, when you look at this particular psalm, it's speaking in general of God, how God helped them to execute these, quote, punishments on different nations. And, you know, this included at times literally carrying off, as it says, they're also kings with chains and they're nobles with fetters of iron. So once again, literal we see the literal application of this from the Israelites as you read through the Old Testament. Now, as for the second part of his question, you know, when can we expect it to be fulfilled? Well, it has already been fulfilled, as we see once again in many places in the Old Testament. And also, we know that it can't be speaking of future because the Israel that we read about in the Old Testament no longer exists. As you might remember, or if you've read through the Old Testament, you see that the Israelites were carried off into captivity when they were split into two different groups, Israel first and then Judah second. They both ended up not just being carried off into captivity, but eventually they were destroyed. And so we see like with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, all of the genealogy and the records and everything about the Jewish Israelite nation was destroyed because when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the old law 
So the Israelites were no longer exclusively God's chosen people, but the, now the gospel was for everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike, we might say, according to the new covenant that we live under today. So anyhow, Jeff, I'll pass it over to you for any. Yeah, the only thing I might add is, is some people, uh, as Baseo was pointing out, you know, might look to this passage and think, well, okay, it's still applicable. It applies to Christians. It gives Christians the right and responsibility to take up, you know, physical weapons, you know, and go forth and, you know, do, quote unquote, God's bidding, you know, marching armies, etc. You know, we saw a little bit of that with, uh, you know, during the Middle Ages with uh, people in Europe, you know, being sent out on the Crusades to, uh, you know, wrestle the you know, city of Jerusalem away from the Muslims. Uh, we see something roughly akin to that within uh, Islam, where the, the holy war or the jihad that uh, they believe uh, Allah allows them to go forth and wage physical warfare against their you know enemies, to include you know Christians, etc. Uh, but you know, in terms of you know the New Testament, what Christians are and are not allowed to do, you know, militarily, so to speak. I think there's a good passage we'll point to very briefly, John chapter 18, uh, verse 36, where Jesus is, you know, in front of Pilate, you know, on trial, you know, for his life. Uh, and, you know, Jesus is basically, basically tells Pilate in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here, you know, not a physical king with citizens, physical armies, go forth and physically conquer. Uh, in fact, a little bit more information you can see over in uh, Romans chapter, near the end of uh, chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13, where it talks about, you know, we should not take our own vengeance. You know, we should love our enemies. Uh, Romans chapter 13 talks about the government you know, has the power of the sword, you know, to punish evildoers. So, Brian, I just thought I'd, you know, throw that in as well. Yeah, good point. We are, we have a spiritual warfare that we wage, not a physical warfare. Exactly. Yeah, we have a, the sword of the spirit. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> okay, Jess, so next uh, we have a request, really, from Jim, who says, Romans 12, 2, meaning of the verse. Okay. So let's kind of look at it in context, beginning with uh, verse 1. So Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So let's sort of, you know, take this apart. Uh, decompose it, if you will, into di different uh, pieces or different phrases. So first phrase, do not be conformed to this world. So it's the beginning, see here, the beginning of a contrast. This world, uh, contextually, uh, worldly attitudes, worldly behaviors, worldly lusts, if you will. Uh, parallel passage, if you like, over in First John chapter 2. Uh, verses 15 through 17. Uh, in fact, Brian, you want to go ahead and read that for our listeners? Absolutely. Here it says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. All right. So again, stark contrast between, I mean, when we say the world, we're not talking about the planet per se, but, you know, attitudes, lusts, etc. Uh, we are not to be conformed to these things. Uh, underlying word basically means to fashion or conform to the same pattern. We see a uh, reference to the same underlying Greek word, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Interesting word. Uh, the underlying Greek word, uh, we uh, use it to derive the modern English word metamorphosis, just like caterpillar to butterfly, you know, change from one form to another. So changing from, you know, being a worldly-minded person, completely changed, to something else, uh, being you know transformed into you know the kind of person that God would have us to be, uh, by the renewing of your mind, a renewal, renovation, a complete change for the better. You, know, you used to act and think uh, and behave you know one way. Well, now we're going. You're going to you're going to metamorphosize, if you will, you know, transform from that you know ugly worldly caterpillar, if you will. To a beautiful butterfly, a child of God. How is that done? Well, in addition to, you know, by the renewing of your mind, so shifting of your mind, instead of being attracted to worldly things, being attracted to, you know, godly things. Uh, and continuing on in the passage, that you may prove, you know, the perfect will of God. Prove. Now, that's an interesting word, Brian, because the word kind of has two different uh, meanings. One is to look at, to examine, to test, to scrutinize whether something is genuine or not. You know, the process, if you will. Uh, the other meaning is almost like the end of the process or the conclusion. You know, to recognize something as genuine. You know, to approve of something. To deem something, you know, worthy uh, as, you know, valid or, as we said, as genuine. Within this context, perhaps both you know, test or examine, you know, what the Bible, you know, tells us that we should do, realize indeed it is God's word, and approve it, uh, recognize it as genuine, deem it worthy to follow, you know, that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In essence, what God would have us to believe, uh, have us to think, uh, shape our attitudes, uh, drive our resulting behavior. So if you back off and look at the whole passage, you know, basically it is a, a contrast. It's a command. You know, do not be, but be. You know, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by, you know, the renewing of your mind, which is an ongoing kind of uh, thing, if you will. Certainly forbids claiming to be a Christian, but acting like a worldly person. In fact, Brian, that reminds me of James chapter 2 uh, in broader uh, passage of verses 14 through verse 26. 
but particularly down near the end, you know, a true saving faith is an active, obedient, productive, working faith. Or as James says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. There you go, Brian. An interesting passage that has a lot packed into it. Yeah, it sure does. And uh, I like how you covered, you know, how the Greek can help understand some of that, like the metamorphosis, this transformation. And, you know, I was thinking as you were going through this about Colossians chapter 3, where it talks about in verse 10 that, you know, after we're baptized, it says that we put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So, you know, God created us in his image. We take ourselves away from that image when we sin. When we're baptized, we are now renewed back through or to that image in which God created us. So it's just a wonderful visualization, if you will, of what occurs when we are baptized. Indeed. All right, so you get the next question. Terafu writes in, many times I hear from different individuals when they say Jesus is not God, but he is a messenger of God, and he is one of the prophets. They raise the point that Jesus never said, I am God, and you should worship me. Uh, There is no single Bible verse in which Jesus directly called himself or said, I am God. Uh, However, many people ask for a verse in the Bible where Jesus called himself God. So how can I answer this question? Which verse in the Bible directly answers this question? Very valid question. I was going to say, sounds like he's dealing with some Muslims, quite frankly. Yeah, I agree. And it's, a, and it's a valid question, you know, because we talk about Jesus and God as being one. And so certainly, you know, if people question whether or not Jesus was just a prophet, they would probably also wonder, well, should we even listen to him? Or is it not blasphemy like the Jews accused Jesus of, of aligning himself with God? You know, yeah, religions like Islam claim, if you study their religion, that Jesus was only a prophet. But the Bible clearly shows us that he was the Son of God and was God at the same time, which can be difficult to grasp. So, for instance, yes, Jesus did not call himself God, but notice the passages that talk about how he was God. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So like we've talked about in previous podcasts, when we talk about the Godhead, it can be certainly a difficult concept to understand that he was God, he was one with God, but yet at the same time, he was a completely separate entity. He was the Son of God. So it's that, once again, can be difficult to wrap our minds around. Well, Philippians 2 helps us, I think, understand this beginning in verse 5, where it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. And then one final passage, you know, to help us understand Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So, you know, in other passages, Jesus, for instance, uh, you know, told Thomas when he asked to show us the Father and we will believe. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he was one with the Lord in all respects as it relates to spiritually 
as it relates to the plan that God had and the, every you know word that he brought was from the Father. So they were intertwined in one in that respect. He was part of the Godhead. So he was once again, God as well. In fact, when we talk about the Godhead, we'll sometimes say God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, because once again, they were all together as one. And so when, you know, we think about this idea uh, about Jesus being part of the Godhead and how he was God in the flesh. First Timothy three, verse 16 says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. So I think that's another good passage that once again tells us it's both. He was God, and yet he was a separate entity. So I don't know, Jeff, if that makes it any clearer. can be difficult, but we certainly know he was more than a prophet, and he certainly was someone that God himself said, listen to him, right? He is my son in whom I am well pleased. Right. Good point. Well, and there are passages, and I don't have them in front of me, where, you know, Jesus accepted worship, which no human should. Uh, Jesus forgave sins, which no human can, you know, in the ultimate sense, since God is the one who sinned against, you know, Jesus forgave sins, which, you know, if he was just a man would be blasphemy. And, and in some ways, this is kind of a, a an artificial or arbitrary challenge. Well, Jesus never did say, I am God. And so because he never said, I am God, he's not. It's like, well, no. I mean, you have to look at the totality of Scripture and the different passages uh, and all of the references to Jesus in basically being far more than just a human, which is what the, what the Muslims would claim, um, and, and other people, you know, outside of uh, Islam as well yeah the bible has much to say we just have to take the time to study it. <laughs> so exactly okay next question for you jeff comes from blackwell and he asked does the bible teach how god expects us to treat animals and fowl birds i guess he's talking about and then he goes on to say training fowl for cockfights dogs for dog fights abusing domesticated animals and fowl was as, as well as any wildlife seems cruel and sinful to me and then he says, I've never been a fan of bullfighting. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And in some ways it is cruel, uh, just to kind of cut to the chase real quick. So here, I think what we best start off answering the question by going back to the beginning, uh, Genesis chapter one and the creation, uh, specifically verse 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Of course, having dominion, uh, a sense of you know ruling or reigning over. So from the get-go, or from the very beginning, uh, we see in some ways that God put humanity in charge of the animals, uh, the birds, every living things. In essence, you'll put them in charge of the planet, so to speak. And one might take that to the extreme and say, well, that means we can do whatever we want to do. I mean, you know, we can just callously, you know, use, abuse animals, you know, strip mine the planet, you know, get all the resources, etc. Well, no, because there are some other passages uh, that talk about us 
needing to have uh, gratitude for the blessings God has given to us, as well as being wise stewards of the things, the blessings that God has given to us. So in some ways, they've been, should I say, given to us on loan. And just like if someone gave us some of their property on loan, we would treat it uh, treat it well, you know, not abuse it. You know, some you know neighbor loans us their car or their mower or whatever. You know, you would take care of it and you know, hence and be thankful for that. And likewise, would apply in the case of uh, animals that God has uh, given us a dominion over. You know, not to abuse, to misuse, or even to be selfish. For example, uh, Isaiah chapter forty-five, verse eighteen. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Uh, especially, maybe more so, Romans chapter 1. Notice carefully, beginning with verse 20. For his, and this would be God, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, which we mentioned a few moments ago, Genesis chapter 1, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude, that's the key point, Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Uh, later on, the same passage talks about them being filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, wickedness, inventors of evil, unloving, unmerciful. So when you back off and look at that passage as a whole, you know, we, we can make, you know, we can easily see multiple applications to animals and really brought more broadly to other natural resources, you know, to use wisely uh, and not uh, abuse. Now, Brian, I might want to add in, you know, real quickly, that we also at the same time need to avoid extremes, like elevating animals, if you will, to be on par with humans and, and treating animals like we would treat humans. I've, I've heard of some people use the term murder. You know, we need to stop murdering animals. It's like, well, no, that term in general is used for, you know, human life. And there is a difference between the two. Humans being created in the image of God, you know, animals not. So there you go. Overall, uh, how does God expect us to treat, you know, the animals? Well, as wise, prudent stewards of God's manifold blessings, if you will. There you go, Brian. Yeah, I like that word stewards because as you pointed out, yeah, we've been given dominion over the animals, but we still need to be stewards over everything God has given us, including animals. So it's so very good. Right. Okay. So you get the next one uh, from Reza. It's a little bit of a lengthy question. And so ask our listeners kind of bear with us. So he writes in and says, I am a gay man who has had a lot of turmoil in my life after being forced to come out. It's like moving behind my own coffin. I live, but don't live. A few weeks ago, I happened to meet a Christian, and he told me something interesting. He said, you were created by God, and in whatever form you are, you belong to God. Love yourself and move towards God. This gave me peace that I hadn't had in a long time. So I tried to research this, 
But everything I read was about the condemnation and rejection of homosexuality in Christianity. Disappointed again and again. So my question is, does Christ see me? Does he hear my words? Interesting way of phrasing it at the very end, Brian. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I, I get the impression that Reza is at least spiritually minded, which is great, you know, because certainly some people who are in relationships like homosexual relationships just reject anything spiritual. Uh, but anyhow, uh, to, to his credit, he's asking a very valid question and wondering about this statement from this Christian he said he met. So I think a good place to start is just understanding that, you know, God loves all of his creation and Jesus does as well. And we see that in one of the most basic passages that many of us, I'm sure, have heard, and that's in John chapter 3, verse 16, and, and including verse 17. So 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so we can see from that passage tremendous amount of love from God, but also from Jesus because he willingly came to this earth knowing what would happen and did so because he wanted to provide us a way to be reconciled back to God. And so, you know, Reza's disappointment that the Bible condemns homosexuality, you know, can be understandable because, you know, based on this statement that this Christian gave him about, you know, God will accept you in whatever form you are, well, no doubt, we all belong to God, like this Christian saying, and I don't want to judge this person because I don't know who they are and what they may have meant fully about what they said. But it's just so critical to understand that, yes, the Bible does condemn homosexuality, but we want to realize that the Bible condemns a lot of sins, like adultery, lying, drunkenness. And I bring this up because, you know, all sins are sins in God's eyes. If he condemns one thing or many things, we have to understand what those are and realize they're equal in the sense that we don't have a right to disparage, threaten, or, you know, mistreat somebody or have hatred for someone who's a homosexual or a drunkard or whatever. Uh, all of us are sinners. And so I feel like when he made this comment about when he came out, it was like a death sentence. Yeah, no doubt. Some people can be very, very harsh towards homosexuals. And the Bible doesn't give us any latitude to do that. In fact, quite the opposite that God loves all men and wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so, you know, when we think about Second or First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, it tells us, you know, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So now, when we look in the Bible, when we look at God's truth, we come to understand what sin is and why God condemns certain behaviors that are a transgression of his law. And often, if we're willing to take the time to understand what sin is, we come to understand there is this contrast between sin and righteousness. So like if you were to go over to Galatians chapter 5, there's just a wonderful list of what we see are considered to be works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. So we see things that are clearly condemned in the works of the flesh, homosexuality being one of those. But once again, it lists several other sins there. And instead, God says, no, I want you to put on the fruit of the Spirit. I want you to have spiritual qualities such as love and kindness and a bunch of other things that you'll see mentioned over there. So, you know, when we study the Word, it gives us perspective on why we need to change. 
And I think sometimes people look in the scriptures and they see a passage here or there and they see that, like, for instance, homosexuality is condemned and it becomes very frustrating. But what's critical is understand, well, why is it condemned? Is it because God doesn't love? No, quite the opposite. In fact, you know, some might even ask, well, what is wrong with homosexuality when it seems that these feelings that they're experiencing are just natural? Well, when we dig in and study, what we see is because it's it's we leave the natural use or we depart from the relationships that God designed that says he wants relationships from a sexual perspective to be between a man and a woman. One of those, if you go back to Genesis, was so that they could populate the earth and so forth. And so in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it talks about leaving the natural use of what God created. Now, in that particular section of Scripture, it talks about how some people did so because they had vile passions. They just wanted to fulfill the lust of their flesh. And I think we'd all have to acknowledge that there are many homosexuals that are not vile in that sense. They're not just out just to please themselves. But once again, they're whether it's they're confused or they have these desires that they don't understand are sinful, uh, and that's why they're homosexuals. We we want to be careful not just to assume, well, these are just vile, wicked people. All they want to do is satisfy their flesh. That's not always the case when somebody's a homosexual. So once again, it can be difficult to grasp when it seems these desires are normal in our mind. And, you know, Reza seems to be asking, you know, will Jesus accept me as I am? Well, once again, we need to understand Jesus loves all of mankind. That's why he gave his life for us. What does he want from us in return? He wants us to be obedient to God's law. And we demonstrate our love for Jesus by doing so. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. So it's based on love that we keep the Lord's commandments and show him that we're willing to respect and follow what God gave us to do. So Jeff, you know, I hope that Reza can learn about how God created man in his image, how he has provided us the truth to teach us what our relationships should be like with others and why homosexuality is condemned. So anyhow. Yeah, uh, good points. Well, and you know, I've, you've probably heard the phrase, you know, come, come to Jesus or, you know, come to Jesus as you are. Well, okay. Certainly, as you said, he wants all to come to him, but you can't come to him and bring along all your different sins and think God will accept me as I am in all of my sins. Well, not without repentance, because that's, you know, part of the plan of salvation as well. And, you know, Brian, in our particular culture, I mean, we're here recording this, um, you know, very, very late in June, very early in July, at least here in the United States. You know, we've now devoted the entire month to, quote unquote, Pride Month. And the LGBTQIA, etc., uh, movement where people are, you know, actively proclaiming, actively promoting, encouraging, endorsing, etc., behavior, and mention emphasis on behavior that the Bible, uh, you know, clearly uh, condemns, and it's also, you know, very, very much politically incorrect. You know, pretty much to say anything about it, but nonetheless, the Bible still says what the Bible says, and God still <laughs> requires us to, you know, come to Him uh, in repentance. You know, uh, putting our sins behind us. Yeah, that's a good point because it creates confusion. You know, when you not only have the society you live in saying we should celebrate homosexuality, you also have a lot of religions that are saying the same thing. They're not 
correctly quoting what the Bible says about it. And so it leads to this impression, like you said, that we can just continue in sin and through God's grace, all that'll be taken care of. That's not what the Bible teaches. So anyhow. Okay, next question for you, Jeff, comes from Katie. In the story of David and Bathsheba, David is not punished by God for his sin. Why? Is God playing favorites here? She says, I want to understand, but I find it terrible that God would punish David's son and 10 wives, 10 of his wives instead. I know the pain that was forced upon these women or those women personally. This seems wrong. So what am I missing? So for our listeners, maybe familiar with the uh, account, but not know where it's found. Basically, 2 Samuel chapter 12 uh, refers to basically David, you know, in today's vernacular, falling in love, I would say falling in lust, with another man's wife, basically committed adultery with her, uh, and then when she became pregnant, um, called her husband, from, who was one of his uh, military men, from the field of battle, tried to get him to sleep with his wife, so to cover up David's sin, that didn't work, tried to, to get uh, him drunk, so he would still go home and sleep with his wife. That didn't work. So basically sent him back out in the battlefield and had him killed. And got it all covered up. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, David's sin was eventually uh, you know, revealed to him by one of his uh, advisors. Key point being, uh, at least in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, keep in mind, number one, David repented. You know, right off the bat, said, Yes, I've sinned, etc. But if you look in the same passage, unlike Katie asserts, David was punished by God for his sin uh, and, and suffered a number of negative consequences. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. Next verse, I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. Verses 14 through 17, he suffered the loss of the, his son that he had had with Bathsheba. Later on, he suffered the embarrassment of having one of his sons rape one of his daughters. Grief from one of his sons murdering the person who had raped one of his daughters. Uh, grief and suffering over Absalom, one of his sons, who rose in rebellion, you know, had it basically led a coup, forced David to flee from Jerusalem uh, for his life. Eventually, he was uh, Absalom was also killed, and David had to you know suffer through that as well. So, you know, David was indeed punishment. There were there were multiple consequences for his sin. So that's point number one. Point number two. Uh, Katie talks about, uh, you know, God punishing David's wives. You can read that a little bit later on where basically Absalom, based on the advice from one of his counselors, chose to do that to David's wives. So don't blame God. <laughs> don't say God punished David's wives. No, that was Absalom's choice. And, you know, Brian, maybe there's an interesting takeaway message. But a lot of people will say, well, you know, why did God, fill in the blank, why did God allow this to happen? Why did God cause that to happen? Whatever. When in reality, if you dig a little bit deeper, you know, God has nothing to do with it. You know, it's P 
people. It's bad choices. It's sin. It's ultimately, if you want to blame Satan, but don't blame God when when people do uh, evil things. Yeah, that's right. And drawing erroneous conclusions, you know, can be very, very dangerous. Uh, Indeed. All right. Uh, Question for you from Johnny. There is something in the Bible about the sins of the father being passed on to the children. Can you clarify that for me, please? Yeah, the Bible actually teaches that us that the sins of the father are not passed on to the children. And But there was this belief in Israel's time where that was the case. And so if you go over to Ezekiel chapter 18, and for those of you that may not be familiar with that chapter, I would really encourage you to read it because it's an excellent, what we might call proof text, if you will, around accountability for sin and how each one of us are accountable for what we do. And so Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20 says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Now, if you go back to verse 2, God here references a proverb that was being said by the Israelites, a common proverb that they would say, insinuating that the children were bearing the guilt of their father's sins. Now, no doubt, if you know Israel's history, some children were carried off into captivity because of their father and mother's sins, and as a result, they suffered the consequences of their parents' sins. But that did not mean that God would hold them accountable for their parents' sins. We are only held accountable for our own sins. So God in that section says, I don't want to hear this proverb anymore. It was a false proverb. Well, we look in the New Testament, the law of Christ that we live under today, it makes this same principle clear. So for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Another passage, Romans chapter 2, verse 5, talks about the righteous judgment of God and then says in verse 6 that he will render to each one according to his deeds. So these are just a couple of passages that really echo what's taught and what God made sure or that God wanted emphasized in Ezekiel chapter 18. And that is, once again, all of us are accountable for our sin. And so, yes, we can suffer the consequences of other people's sins but we will not be held accountable for them. God is not going to judge us in the final day based on anything that our parents have done. And the final thing I'll mention, Jeff, and then I'll just turn it over to you, is that, yeah, we could be a stumbling block, right? So we could, in essence, be responsible for other sins if we cause them to sin. So there's some little nuances there that we might consider, but just in general, all of us are accountable only for our own sins. Yeah, I, I like that thing you added at the end because, you know, certainly sometimes children, grandchildren, etc., will suffer from the sins committed by the parents for whatever reason. That might be, you know, financial sin, it might be drug abuse, it might be child abuse, etc. Uh, and the children and sometimes even grandchildren will, will suffer as a result. But also to the point you just made, sometimes the teaching of the parents or the example that the parents set will influence the children you know into a you know adopting that ongoing uh, pattern or culture or family 
background, if you will, uh, that promotes or, or continues, you know, the sinful activity. You know, at least here within the United States, you know, some, uh, you know, some families are, are notorious for having, you know, multi-generational uh, badness, <laughs> you know, wickedness. You know, if you think in terms of like, you know, organized crime families, uh, as an example, for multi-generations. That is very true. And we can help to set up generations of wicked people or generations of righteous people, right? If we do our job. So, yeah. True. But, you know, again, you know, the key point you're making is each individual personally held, responsible, accountable for themselves. You know, you can't blame your parents. You can't blame your culture. You can't blame your genetics, <laughs> so to speak. You know, God made me this way, so therefore he will accept me this way. No, no, each person individually accountable. Exactly. All right, Jeff, the next question for you comes from Kirk. He says, I have crippling arthritis and I can't attend the assembly. Am I sinning? He then makes the statement, on Sunday I read my Bible and study different Bible topics and I partake of the Lord's table. So, first of all, let's kind of lay a little bit of groundwork. God, through the New Testament, you know, certainly commands, commands faithful Christians to assemble together in local congregations, you know, on the Lord's Day, to perform certain acts of worship as a group, and where there are qualified elders, like we talked earlier, you know, submit themselves to their oversight. You can see passages like Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 26, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Titus 1, uh, verses 5 through 9, uh, 1 Timothy 3, uh, verse 1 through 7. Now, of course, this assumes that the you know, local congregation is indeed faithfully you know, practicing you know, New Testament Christianity and has not adopted you know, false doctrines and commandments of men. So, attendance, coming together, Worshiping together, singing one to another, you know, etc. Partaking of the Lord's Supper, etc., are, are all things that you know God commands Christians to do within a local congregation. Uh, and Christians who willfully decide, eh, I don't have to, you know, basically they're in sin. Now, admittedly, a person may occasionally you know encounter circumstances beyond their control. You know that prevents that. I mean, they may be ill. There may be some, you know, extenuating, you know, bad weather. You know, may, they may suddenly have, you know, transportation problems, whatever, and that might hinder a person from attending. Uh, you know, there are, there may also be some circumstances that hinder a person from attending for a, we'll call it a protracted or a lengthy time period. Uh, sometimes even permanently. I mean, you know, prolonged hospitalization. Um, you know, Alzheimer's disease, uh, infirmed, elderly, etc. Uh, but these cases should more be the exception, uh, you know, should not be used as an excuse. You know, those who are physically and mentally able to attend, well, they need to attend. Okay? Uh, so in his case, you know, crippling arthritis, can't get out, can't get around, you know, even though God commands Christians to come together and worship. You know, we're, we're talking about an extenuating circumstances, you know, beyond his control. Now, one thing I might also mention, you know, he talks about partaking of the Lord's table. Uh, here's kind of a subtle nuance that, that our listeners may not be, you know, aware of. When you come to the New Testament, the, the, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, you know, 
uh, unleavened bread, fruit of the vine, etc., in recognition or remembrance of uh, Jesus's, you know, body and blood, uh, uh, his crucifixion, his atoning death, etc. That is something which, according to the New Testament pattern, is to be taken in the assembly with fellow Christians as a joint act of individuals, individual Christians. First Corinthians chapter eleven. Uh, you can kind of read that passage from verses uh, 18 through verse 34. But you'll see this phrase over and over again. First of all, when you come together as a church. A little bit later on. When you come together in one place. A little bit later on. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. So the emphasis is coming together. You know, taking it by yourself, at home, on the road, whatever. That, that's not the pattern. Not the pattern. So since he's prohib- uh, since he's unable to attend the worship, uh, yes, certainly you can you know read Bible study. You you, know, you can do that anytime, right? Uh, but this concept of partaking of the Lord's Supper on your own uh, is is not uh, not according to the New Testament pattern, right? Yeah, you nailed it, so to speak. So I have nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's go on to the next one then. So John writes in, why has Judas? And I assume he's referring to Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. Why has Judas received a bad reputation over the centuries? Was he not just doing God's will? And his action, the first event in a series of events leading to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, uh, according to Scripture, according to prophecy, yeah, interesting question, and it's just one where we have to realize that, no, Judas was a sinner, He and he betrayed Jesus for money. In fact, if you look in other passages, you'll see that he was also a thief, and so we get a, you know, we get a clear picture of Judas's character. I mean, here was a man stealing from the money box that they all carried around, so we see that he was a wicked man, and so then, you know, when you think about John asking about, well, it was according to Scripture. Some might believe that God purposely caused Judas to sin to fulfill Scripture, but we know that's not the case. And so in Psalm chapter 41 and verse 9, it was actually prophesied that Judas would do this. So here, Psalm 41, 9 says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So Judas was one of the first, uh, one of the original 12 apostles, was a friend of Jesus, but yet he betrayed him. Now, this does not mean, as I just mentioned, that God forced him to do this, as God is omniscient, and he knew what would happen to his son through Judas. We also know that Judas was tempted by the devil. We see this in John chapter 13 and verse 2, and he chose to betray Jesus. In fact, I would argue that just based on Judas's reaction after Jesus was arrested tells us that he fully understood that he had sinned based on his own choice. So if we go over to Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 3, it says, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, speaking of Jesus, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. So 
kind of a sad ending, Jeff. You know, here was a man who did have, as it says here, he was remorseful, but yet he still chose to take his own life. So to me, at least says that, yeah, he recognized he was responsible. It was a choice that he made. And it certainly wasn't something that God forced him to do, as some might uh, allude to. Right. Well, and as we said in a response to one of the previous questions, you know, each, each person held accountable, you know, for what they've done in this life and, you know, personal choices. Choices have consequences. And sometimes they lead us into doing things that we, you know, in hindsight, look back on and deeply regret. And as we see in Judas's case, a perfect example of that. Yeah, so true. So true. All right. Well, you get the last question from Taylor. Taylor says, my concern is bothering me quite a bit. Matthew and Luke order events of Jesus differently in their Gospels. Mark as well. How do I reconcile the different chronological sequences of events? This has bothered me greatly, and the more thorough the response, the better. And, you know, this is a good one, Brian, because we often get questions like this that involve the inspiration of the Scriptures, the reliability of the Scriptures. You know, people will see differences between two accounts of an event. Uh, and because there are differences, they will you know, conclude, well, it's a contradiction. And since it's a contradiction, therefore, it cannot be the Word of God. Uh, in fact, over the years, I've been kind of uh, squirreling away a number of alleged contradictions that, that people have had. In fact, at one point, I came across a website that had over a hundred you know, alleged contradictions. Now, generally speaking, I, I do emphasize alleged contradictions because in many ways, you know, they can be explained uh, that resolves the contradiction in ways that are, you know, reasonable and plausible. I mean, you know, here's some examples. Uh, sometimes different authors describing the same event may emphasize different details. You know, one author may describe, you know, detail A and B and C, and another author may describe, you know, detail C and D and E. And because they're differences doesn't mean there's a contradiction. Uh, sometimes, I mean, we, we moderns like to have things in perfect order chronologically. You know, writers in the New Testament, and I might add and mention modern day writers, often do not put things in strict chronological order. I'll have more to say about that in a couple of moments. Uh, sometimes people will, you know, an author will paraphrase what someone said, and another person may give more of a direct quote, slight differences, same event, no contradiction. Uh, and, you know, even when it comes down to things like numbers, uh, some authors may, you know, give, give a general number like 400. Another author may say 430. You know, again, variance in detail. Uh, key point being, uh, you know, valid reasons that explain some of these difference, differences. And, and in fact, I might note that some of these examples we use today and we see today, you know, in modern news reports or in historical documents that people routinely accept as reliable. You know, we mentioned uh, chronology. You know, even in today, in, uh, you know, news reports or in our literature or in our movies, you know, we have things called flashbacks. Uh, 
we have things that may flash forward where, you know, the character in the event, you know, the, the sequences, you know, the sequence seems to break. And, and now they're describing something that was in the future, or something in the past. And that's okay, because it helps to, you know, tell the story. Now, the other th nuance we have is sometimes you may have similar events, not the same event, similar events at different times. And because there's differences, people say, oh, contradictions. Well, no, that's probably because in some cases, Jesus did some, as an example, did some teaching at one part in his ministry and did similar teaching in a different part of the ministry. And the context is slightly different. Uh, and what's being emphasized in the teaching is slightly different. And people go, oh, look, it's out of sequence. It's like, well, not necessarily. It could be the two different events, similar teaching, different times. All of which you know, I think goes to the point that, you know, a lot of people are out there, you know, skeptics, atheists, you know, even Muslims, uh, and even to some degree like Mormons and, and others will try to use alleged contradictions in the Bible to undermine our faith in the scriptures. Um, and unfortunately, I have to add to that, you know, like representatives f from like the modern, you know, liberal media that, you know, want to promote all kinds of sinful activities, violence, profanity, abortion, you know, evolution, disrespect for authority, etc. Bottom line is, you know, don't be misled by people that want to drive a wedge between you and God, between you and the scriptures, trying to plant seeds of doubt. Know, in the scriptures. You know, Brian, the other thing I might mention uh, for our listeners, you know, if you have heard of alleged contradictions, you know, in the Bible or between Bible and secular history, and you're still puzzled over those alleged contradictions, again, we mentioned we've got an ask a question feature <laughs> uh, that you can come to our website, you know, submit a question to us, and, you know, within a couple of days, we will try and answer it and give you a, a scriptural response. Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, we recorded an episode on alleged Bible contradictions. So those of you that are interested in that, it was episode 106, or you can go to the podcast page. And so as Jeff pointed out, you know, it's easy for some to claim that the Bible contradicts itself, you know, and thinking about the Gospels, uh, even actually thinking about the differences between Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, you know, one lists what happened chronologically, one is a summary of what happened, so it can come across as a contradiction when actually it's just presenting the information from a different viewpoint or, you know, once again, in a different manner, doesn't necessarily mean it contradicts, so. Yes, indeed. So, yeah, Brian, as you were talking, I, I looked up uh, our website. So, on our main page, uh, biblequestions.org, there's a podcasts menu item that folks can click on. Uh, that'll take you to a page that allows you to listen to podcasts in a couple different ways. One is there's a listing near the top of the page, a table uh, that's in chronological order, starting off with the most recent podcast, which while we're doing this recording is like you know, 170 some odd podcasts. Uh, underneath that, you will find a topical index if you scroll on down within the topical index, you'll find Bible contradictions, which looks like we recorded back in March of 2022 that our folks, our listeners can go back and, and listen if they're interested in that particular topic. Yeah, I thought it was good. Several alleged contradictions that we took a look at. So encourage everybody to do that. And just for some additional resources based on the questions that we've answered today, 
If you go to our website and go to the topics menu, so biblequestions.org, go to the topics menu, and then look at the alphabetical index, you can find more information on attendance for, under the letter A, so church attendance based on the question we answered, C for Christian evidences, C for church government, and you'll notice also there's a link to elders and deacons talking about the organization of the church and church government. Uh, also under C, creation, D for David, F for faith, H for homosexuality, uh, L for the Lord's Supper, J for Judas Iscariot. We even have a question that was answered there about Judas Iscariot. O for obedience, N for nature of Jesus, and P for predestination. So a lot of resources on our website we encourage you to use. And as Jeff mentioned earlier, if there's a question that you have that has not been answered on our site that you can't find, feel free to click on that Ask a Question button, and we'll be happy to get your scriptural response within a couple of days. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.